Welcome to From the Ground Up, where we talk to reptile keepers and breeders about all things cold-blooded. Sit back and have a beer with us. Well, some of you are driving. If you're driving, keep your hands tended to and enjoy the show. Welcome back, everyone, to another From the Ground Up podcast. So, as always, brought to you by Port City Pet. Check out portcitypet.com for different substrates as well as animals that are available. Also, go check out my sponsor, and that's going to be Focus Cubed Habitat. So, go check out what Ashley and Steven have going on over there. They also have an awesome YouTube channel taking you through some of their builds as well as some of their general shenanigans that are going over there at Focus Cube. They are making some of the best enclosures, most innovative enclosures in the industry. So please go check them out. Focus Cubed everywhere, focuscubedhabitats.com. Other than that, we have a guest that's been on two other times, actually. I don't know if he, uh, he may be one of a very small handful of three-time guests, but we are going to be talking a little bit of taxonomy. You know who he is. He's been on the show before. Dr. Zach Lothman of Western Liberty University. How's it going? It's going great. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. Of course. Thanks for coming on again. And today we are going to be on a little bit more of a, uh, I guess, science-based approach as far as going over one of the hottest contended topics in, uh, in the hobby, which is going to be taxonomy. So can you go over, you're someone who's named species yourself. So can you go over a little bit of what taxonomy is and how it's applied? Yeah, sure. So Taxonomy is just basically it's it's what we as biologists use to catalog 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 life. So whenever a, a zoologist or a botanist or whatever ology you're into, um, whenever those scientists are out in the field and they stumble onto an organism, and they come to the conclusion this might be a new species or undescribed species is the better way of saying that. Uh, you know, we have to undergo this process to ultimately determine if that hypothesis is correct. And in so doing, the end goal is either going to be the description of a new species, or you end up figuring out that this organism you find represents a population of a previously named species. So I know in herpetoculture, this is a big deal. Uh, I've listened to lots of podcasts, lot read lots of content. and. Um, it's an area that I feel might need a little bit of clearing up. And given that I'm in literally in the business of naming new species in the form of new species of crayfish, I thought I might be able to serve the herpetological herpetoculture community by maybe clearing some things up and, and giving you all some work and definitions. Yeah. And I think that, that really helps clear things up. I mean, for me as well, we're talking about, you know, a lot of us as hobbyists, we may not have, a any technical knowledge or say uh traditional knowledge in in what we do so sometimes we need a little bit of uh cleaning up on this kind mm -hmm. of stuff so um can we talk a little bit about how it's used in the hobby and kind of some common misnomers and things that we may have gotten wrong yeah sure so before we go any further you know i am mr academic but i do want to throw an observation that i've made with the herp hobby, which is herpetoculturists, the, the hardcore peeps, we all have the eye of a taxonomist. Uh, anytime you look at a clutch of turtles, geckos, snakes, whatever, and out of that clutch pops an aberrant individual or, or an, uh, uh, 
individual or neonate that looks a little bit different than the rest of the clutch or what we constitute to be normal, that is exactly what I as a taxonomist do when I'm out in the field catching a crayfish. You know, I know what normal for the species represents. And so when I flip a rock and into my seine net flows an animal that isn't normal, you know, that's what piques my interest. And so I would argue that herpetoculture and people working in herpetoculture literally have the eye of a taxonomist. You know, this is something that's very akin to what we do in this field. The difference though is I have the training as a biologist and I know the working definitions of a species. I know what falls within the boundaries of a species. And that's the area that I think might need a little bit of cleaning because there's been quite a few papers since 2000 that have kind of come out and taking long-standing herpetological dogma uh, taxonomically and just basically obliterated it. And, you know, it, it was a what might be perceived as a bloodbath. Um, but, but the reaction scientifically in, for many of these papers was identical to the reaction in the hobby. It was not really readily accepted upon publication. So in the subsequent time since then, we've had time to, you know, really like kind of dig in and, and look at how these conclusions were made. And some of them were adopted and some of them weren't, but yeah. So you have a specific aspect of that you want me to talk about first? Yeah, so how are we, how do we say we see something aberrant in our clutch? We know that that's not anything special going on, but how do you as a scientist see something in the field and say, that's different? Um, does it have to only happen once? Do you need to find multiple individuals? How do you start that process? All right, so the process involves a lot of repetitive sampling. So essentially what you do is you are out in the field, you collect an organism, you get it in hand. If you're using a morphological definition of a species, which basically means you're basing your diagnosis, which is the technical term for what makes it so, what makes it a species, you're going to be out in the field, you're going to have an understanding of what the diagnosis of the species in question is. And so when you go out and collect, when you capture snake, salamander, frog, turtle, whatever it may be, and you start looking at it, if something is a little bit off, that's what initiates this process. But if you're a good taxonomist, systematics person, you're not going to immediately say, I got a new species. That's not the way this works. So like all things in science, you have to identify that unique morphology, and then you have to go out into the field and sample at as many sites as possible and as you're doing that around that initial finding, if that morphology is consistent within a geography, within a geographic distribution, that's what starts the process of you thinking, okay, I might have something new. And the way we go about this in 2021 is radically different than the way we would have done it all the way back in like, you know, just 30-ish years ago in 1990, because the kind of equalizer in all of this now is this wonderful science and it's both a blessing and a curse which we can talk about here in a minute called molecular phylogenetics which is basically where dna gets involved because the dna is going to really be reflective of the evolutionary history and what many people don't realize is we can actually use dna the exact same way we use a morphological diagnosis um 
and we can get into that later, but that would be like the second step. You go out, you sample all the animals across the distribution, you start to see a consistent pattern morphologically, and then you'll take tissue from all those animals and then you'll look at the DNA. What we do today is a little bit different because some individuals just simply go out and take a wide ranging species. They don't really care initially about the morphology. What they really care about is that DNA. So they'll go out and maybe catch all, you know, a whole bunch of Eastern garter snakes from Maine all the way down to Florida and not necessarily look at them morphologically, but just simply take a tissue sample and then run that genetics and then see what does the genetics say. And when the genetics shows a grouping, then you kind of reverse engineer it, come back and see, does this group have a morphology that's then associated with a geography? And when I say geography, that just means range or distribution, which is another term that we all use. So it's a it's definitely a bit of a process. It's not just the days of walking out and being like, Eureka, I found a new species that just, you know, that's happened with me, but I study a group of animals that nobody else studies. And that's kind of the benefit of studying that. With snakes in North America, that's not going to happen. We, we, we pretty much know what's here. So, so does that mean that there's going to be a large reworking of, say, the things that were done prior to the 1990s, that period that you were talking about? And that's a lot of changes? Yes. Because with, with the modern advent of genetics, what that has done is for most biologists not all there's still some old schoolers hanging on but my generation the current generation this whole idea of subspecies it just really does not hold water nine times out of ten when you start looking at dna uh and, and that's what's really kind of led to the troubles in herpetoculture because if you look at the the massive taxonomic upheaval that's happened with a lot of our you know very familiar reptiles and amphibians, it's usually resulted in the complete obliteration of subspecies. And then you end up with maybe two or three species. And that just, that, that gets into what your definition of a species is and, and this whole idea of subspecies and most modern day zoologists. Now I say most, there's definitely some that don't fall into this category. The working definition of a subspecies really just doesn't hold water. And, and that's real important when you get into things like the rat snakes, copperheads, cottonmouths, king snakes, even indigos at one point. So, And now I guess going back a little bit, if, uh, if you say that something is a species, does that automatically make it a species? What's the scientific process that goes through and says, I listen to him, not him. This is what the species is now. How do you make those kinds of decisions? That's an excellent question because – uh, sometimes I think it's interpreted within the hobby or within herpetoculture that you know, a paper was published, therefore it's, this is the way. Uh, and in reality, you can completely read the paper and be like, I don't agree with that. That's garbage. And you can completely hold on to the old taxonomy. And that's what, what we as systematics people do. All a species is when you break it down is a hypothesis. All you are saying is that this group of populations are related and they constitute a taxonomic unit. And I'm hypothesizing that this is a species. All species can be challenged. It's just you've got to have the multiple lines of evidence to support them. 
So there's totally been, I mean, there's been species I've described in crayfish land that I know other crayfish biologists were like, that's crap. Loafman, what the hell are you talking about? That's not a valid taxa. And, and that's a scientific process. What a lot of people fail to realize is you don't have to agree with any of it. Um, you, you can acknowledge it. You just as scientists, we're going to latch on to whatever has the most evidence to support the conclusion. So that's where the hobby of herpetoculture and the science of herpetology just do not mix well. <laughs> There's a complete misunderstanding there. Um, so, so obviously, as breeders or as hobbyists, we are trying to benefit in a different way as far as you guys aren't saying breeding to uh, specific locales of corn snakes together in order to sell them. Um, so I feel like sometimes maybe it benefits us to have a rosy rat snake instead of a keys corn snake or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. And, and people that are in herpetoculture for locality um, lines or, or whatever you want to call them, there's absolutely nothing wrong with recognizing those different populations that used to be understood as subspecies. It's just within the science of herpetology, they're no longer recognized. But they absolutely at one, I mean, they, they do maintain what we would call a phenotype. So that's basically what they appear to be. Um, and that phenotype is unique to a particular geography. Just the difference, what's been done scientifically is what we formerly thought represented a taxonomic unit. Now we have genetic evidence that shows there's absolutely little to no genetic diversity between this color morph, i.e. phenotype, same thing, and this color morph, i.e. phenotype, same thing. But that doesn't mean it's not interesting. That certainly doesn't mean it's not worth maintaining, um, especially in herpetoculture. And I would argue that that's actually something that herpeto herpetoculture can do um, in the grand scheme of things that's beneficial is recognizing that intraspecies diversity. And I think what is either fun or not fun, depending who, uh, like I know a buddy, Chris Montrose, he, he always kind of replenishes his groups with wild types so that you don't get this selective radioactive say, uh, you know, a lot of times we have these Miami corn snakes that are very, very drastic gray and red. Mm -hmm. Are you ever going to be able to go down to Miami and find one that looks like that? Maybe that's a one in a thousand animal if it yeah. happens at all. So, I mean, where do we, we're, we're also taking these phenotypes and we're raising them up like 10 notches and then still getting mad that it's not, a pure whatever the hell mutant. I mean, you see it in jungle carpet pythons, yeah. right? Those are gray and gold or tan and gold, or sorry, tan and black in the wild. And now we have them radioactive yellow and black, yeah. but how dare you ever mix them with something else because they're pure, but they're not even close to what the wild type would be like in the first place. Yeah. Um, and that's another thing. Even when you bring in a given location and start reproducing it, you're still doing selective breeding. I mean, if you have five male Miami corns, just using those, and five female Miami corns, and you're a breeder, you're going to have a particular phenotype within that population that you like. So you're going to breed the two that basically are the most drastic or whatever together to get the most drastic offspring. Uh, when you're doing that, you're just enhancing that population level genetics. In nature, the boy... Miami corn gives two craps what the female looks like. He just wants to get his genes in the next population. That's what creates that continuum in nature that we would, you know, 
diagnosed as a Miami corn, which might in her culture look drastically different. And I feel like sometimes that may give us a skewed perspective as yes. far as, um, especially when I look at my Everglades rat, which is red, red, you're not really getting the in-between. There's oranges, mm -hmm. yellow animals. There's all different, you know, those all represented in that bunch there. We yeah. definitely pick the red ones. Yeah, no, we're, we're enhancing and promoting what we perceive as pretty. Uh, and that's artificial selection. And, and in nature, that's not happening. But when, when you get in, you know, using rat snakes as an example, um, I've been standing where there should be gray, gray, you know, when I say gray rat snakes, I mean a legitimate gray snake uh, in Georgia before and um, found a gray one and then kept walking out this little island in Okefenokee Swamp and then out of a tree, literally right in the middle of the path fell a black rat snake. I mean, it was a black rat snake, but it was well within the distribution of what the gray phenotype. So what that is, is that's natural variation within that population. And that's what we forget exists. Uh, that's ever present. Even with well-defined phenotypes, you can still get a random genetic mutation out in the wild that can then pop up. And if that particular animal is successful in reproducing multiple times, especially if it's a male, because he can get his genes into multiple females and thus produce tons of progeny, you might see a little increase in a given phenotype where we don't necessarily think that phenotype exists. Um, and we oftentimes forget that that can happen. Uh, we, we want everything to be what the snake looks like in the Conan, sorry, in the um, Peterson's Field Guide to Eastern Reptile and Amphibians. Uh, and in reality, there's all kinds of variation, even within these well-defined, what we used to recognize as a valid subspecies. And now for most of the snakes have been taxonomically sunk. Yeah. And can we talk about how rat snakes were distributed before? So, I mean, uh, most of us grew up with black rat snakes, yellow rat snakes, uh, gray rat snakes. So can you explain a little bit how that started? Um, the taxonomy that I'm, that I was used yeah. to. So way back, uh, when I believe one of the first herpetologists to kind of tackle the rat snake group in the 1800s was this guy named Holbrook. Uh, and Holbrook basically was the equivalent of a taxonomist. And what happened is people were going all over North America. I mean, back then, you know, Kentucky was like the Amazon to people, which we have a hard time accepting now. But, it, you know, that was exactly what it was like so these herpetologists scientists whatever you want to call them were getting these random animals from all over the country and there's no dna we didn't even know dna existed then so the result was everything that looks a little bit different is its own species and so when you are up here in the northern latitudes like i'm in west virginia here everything's black and if you go in a straight line across into ohio indiana illinois you're just going to find repetitive you know, repeat of black, 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 black rat snakes. But when you get your way down into the South, that's where things really start to, to change. And there's a term for this. If you're a scientist, you would call it phenotypic plasticity, which basically means your phenotype is plastic. And in biology speak, all that means is that it's variable. Now, why we don't say it's phenotypic variation, we actually do say that, but some taxonomists would rather say phenotypic plasticity. So when you get down into the southeastern U.S., that's where you start picking up yellow rat snakes, um, the uh, greenish or 
it's kind of the integrated form between a black and a yellow rat snake, like in coastal Carolina. You got the golf hammock guys in uh, parts of Florida, the Everglades snake or rat snake, all the way down in southern Florida, the Texas rat snake out in East Texas, and then yellow rats and gray rats, you know, the whole kit and caboodle. Well, initially, those are all different phenotypes. We have no idea of what DNA is, so they all were given unique names. As science progressed, and the definition of species progressed, that's what led to many of those species being sunk and then being converted into what we would call a subspecies. And so that's what where we stood, you know, as early as the late 80s, early 90s, is that we had one species, Alephae obsoleta, and then we had all these subspecies floating around. Uh, and ultimately, what ended up happening in the late 90s, early 2000s, is a, a manuscript came out and technology showed up, just like with everything, when you have a new form of a new way of doing things, a new technology, you're going to adapt it, it's going to change the way things were. So this new technology was utilizing um, proteins, or sorry, not proteins, uh, utilizing DNA. Prior to DNA, we used these things called allozymes and proteins to molecularly do taxonomy and that really kind of sucked it just made things much worse than than you think they are currently but when people started using the dna now we're like we're working with the raw material of evolution and what that ended up showing is it just basically it redefined what we use to constitute a species uh and it really kind of showed that this whole idea of a subspecies it, it kept showing with all kinds of species. It doesn't matter if it was a bird, a fish, freshwater mussel, a crawdad. When people started looking at this stuff genetically, the whole idea of what a subspecies was just kept getting hammered. And now it's extremely rare for people to even recognize subspecies once you do a little bit of investigation. So and why does that happen? Why does that is that so definitive? Meaning, like, what's the definition of a species as far as DNA goes? So when, when you're actually getting in the business of describing a new species, you have to define a species. Uh, and so we, we can do that quickly. A lot of people learned, you know, in high school, maybe in an introduction, introductory biology class in college, you know, a species is a, is a population of animals or plants that is reproductively isolated from other populations. And that's, you know, that's a little trippy, heady out there. But basically what this is, the, gets into the whole idea that you have species A and species B and they reproduce. If they are actually two different species, they're not going to be able to produce offspring, which means that they're reproductively isolated. That's one option. Or they do produce an offspring, but that offspring is not able to reproduce. And that's, of course, the idea of a hybrid. Uh, well, this species concepts, what we call the BSC, the biological species concept. And there are definitely people that still hold on to it. But the vast majority of people that actually work in systematics and taxonomy, they recognize parts of it. But it's no longer, I would argue, the dominant species definition. And what a lot of people don't realize is if you do a deep dive into what a species is, there's over 30 definitions of species. There's the biological species concept, the evolutionary species concept, the ecological species concept, the phylogenetic species concept. Um, there's population level uh, species there. And you've got to, as a scientist, 
kind of figure out first, what is my definition of a species? So what many people utilize today and started really kind of grabbing onto in the 90s through the 2000s is what is referred to as the evolutionary species concept. And the evolutionary species concept says a species is a group of populations that has its own evolutionary tendencies and fates. And that's like a once once the like ivory tower esoteric definitions are like, what the hell does that even mean? Um, but what we mean by has its own evolutionary tendencies and fates, the way I've always interpreted that as is a species has a unique geography, and that geography is going to dictate what constitutes being fit. So by fit, we mean what's advantageous. So if you're a snake that lives in the middle of the desert, you don't want to be black. That is a horrible color to be, because when you go out onto the sand in the middle of the day, you're going to retain heat. Your body temperature is going to skyrocket. And so your evolutionary tendencies and fates are going to keep you from being black. And when those random mutations show up and you get a black individual, it dies. And this is the difference between herpetoculture and you know evolution. Because if we have a species of snake that's white, or, or that's light, that lives in the desert, and we get that one-off that's black, herpetoculture is like, yes, new morph, melanistic. And then they grab that and cater it and propose, you know, promote it and that's when we end up with a melanistic whatever uh that's not the way evolution would would work in that situation so so using this kind of idea of evolutionary tendencies and fates the other thing is with the evolutionary species concept if you take species a and you take species b and you reproduce them together and they produce an offspring some biologists would argue who cares because if species A lives in Africa and species B lives in North America, they're never gonna come together naturally. So there's no way those two things could possibly be the same species. But if they share a distribution, then they can come together naturally and they're sharing that evolutionary tendency and fate. See the thing there? So using this evolutionary species concept, uh, it also lends itself to the elimination of subspecies because by definition to keep this nice and simple a subspecies was a geographic race of a species okay well a geographic race is going to have its own evolutionary tendencies and fates so if you use an evolutionary species concept by sheer default it lends itself away from the whole idea of subspecies in the first place and so what DNA did is it basically, it provided us the, you know, it, it provided a, an argument for us to see, does that biological species concept hold more water or does the evolutionary species concept hold more water? And genetically, molecular phylogenetics has a tendency to be much more in favor of an evolutionary species approach than a biological species approach. So that's part of the reason why the subspecies just keep getting obliterated because every time we do these you, you know, you, you do this kind of research, it's very difficult to find a, a genetic, get a genetic result that shows like a nice little uh, intermediate, if you will. You either get this or that, or they're all lumped together. That's kind of the way the results are, are, are proposed in those phylogenetic trees that you all see. And now can we look at, in particular, rat snakes? So here's the map right here of how they're distributed now. And I mean, you have, you do have geographical landmarks here, right? As far as like the Appalachian Mountains are going through the mm -hmm. range, um, the border of the Eastern 
to Gray Rat Snake slash Midland, whatever you're calling it, and then the Mississippi River on the other side, right? So yeah. like there are some geographical things, but doesn't exactly follow that. I mean, what makes them definitive species and not just one big species? So another thing, another approach, and the actual more modern approach to, to defining a species is this idea of an integrated species concept, which basically means you take the best parts of multiple concepts, which is extremely logical, by the way, and then you kind of integrate them all together into one concept. So using an integrated species concept to define your species, you're going to look at morphology, which is literal physical dichotomy and phenotype. Um, and, and sometimes you can lump in the morphology coloration. You're going to look at geography, and that's getting into that evolutionary species concept idea with the whole unique evolutionary tendencies of faith. And then you're going to look at, it's oftentimes referred to as molecules, but what we basically mean is DNA. So you kind of group those all together. If you have uh, what you think is a species as a hypothesis, and you're able to show it's got genetic uniqueness that's associated with a unique geography, and that genetic uniqueness is manifested in a unique morphology, you've now used an integrated species concept. You've got multiple lines of evidence, which is the most important part. Then you can move forward with your hypotheses. And most of the species that are described today fall into that. The rat snakes were one of the very first species to be tackled using DNA. And uh, while the author tried to demonstrate that there's a morphology and a, that morphology is associated with geography and that geography is associated with genetics, the problem is that there's literally on the map the area of uncertainty. Uh, and, and that's just completely like, I remember when that paper came out and there were a lot of people in herpetology and that was back in the days when I was in grad school for herpetology. So, you know, I was right in the thick of it where a lot of us kind of went, what the hell? Like they literally published, I don't know what the hell's going on here. Um, <laughs> and that was, that's kind of, that wasn't atypical. doesn't mean it was wrong. Uh, you know, there is strong evidence genetically to support there being the three groups of North American rat snakes. And since 2000, when the main paper came out, there's been more and more and more research done that kind of uh, a lot of there's been some cleaning up. But, yeah, there was absolutely problems with it initially when it was published. Um, one of the areas oh, that <clears throat> was a problem there we go, is if you bring that map back up, um, the Appalachian Mountains. So it was proposed that running right through, so if you look at West Virginia, I can talk about my home state here, we got that little doodad that hangs off the eastern part. That's what we call the eastern panhandle. We're, we have two panhandles, not one. I'm in the other one. And this map's actually a little bit incorrect because that area of uncertainty used to kind of go over to there. And one of the things that was said was that these rat snakes don't make it east, sorry, west of this thing called the Appalachian Front, which is a mountain range in the Allegheny Mountains. Um, that's essentially a, a almost a vertical rock face. And initially it was proposed that the Ohio River might represent an important barrier to gene flow. And all of us that are in West Virginia quite literally were like, what the hell are you talking about? 
We've all stood on the Allegheny front. Ironically, if you want to find a rat snake in West Virginia, that's one of the absolute best places to go. They can totally get up over that mountain range. They're slithering around up there, and they're actually enormous. Some of the biggest rat snakes I've seen have been up there. So the the argument that was kind of counterintuitive here is that these app that the Appalachian Mountains serve as a unique and a defined barrier to gene flow. Uh, crazy concept. Rat snakes climb trees. If they <laughs> climb trees, they can go from treetop to treetop to treetop. It doesn't matter how vertical the rock faces are. They're going to get over that mountain. They're going to get their genes from east of the Appalachians into the Appalachians. And the whole argument here was that there was a central the, the central clade, which is that deep purple, was unique genetically from the eastern clade, which is the orange. And the problem with doing genetics is if you don't have a complete enough data set initially, so if you don't have really fine sampling over the geographic range of the animal in question or the whatever it is, you can get an artificial result that basically will show animals being massively unrelated. And the reason why is, if you, just looking at the map here, if you collect rat snakes in eastern North Carolina, where it's clearly orange, and then the next population west of there that you have genetics for is eastern Tennessee, where it's clearly purple, when you run those genetics, they're going to show up as drastically different. But if you add populations from Raleigh, from Asheville, from Charlotte, which fills the gap, you may actually then you've got the genetic signature for that in-between zone. And just given the nature of the technology used to generate those trees, you might suddenly what, create what used to be two disparate clades. They group together as one clade now because you've got the intermediate because it's essentially what we call a cline. And all a cline is, you might have seen clinal variation. That's just a term that says along a geographic gradient, if you're at the extremes of the gradient, as far east and west, you're going to have two different phenotypes there. But if you work your way in towards the center of that just distribution, in the middle, you're going to have the intermediate form. So if you're only taking the genetics from here and here, of course you're going to get a very disparate result. And when you look at the actual manuscript that this came out of, the the genetic sampling was not as detailed as it probably should have been. And had they done that, they might have gotten a different result. But this is also at the beginning of molecular phylogenetic studies. And we really didn't understand at that time how important it was to have fine resolution in your sampling. Um, so that's what we do today. Uh, you would it would not be normal to publish a paper with as few a genetic samples as was done initially. So are you kind of suggesting the fact that it would all make sense if we had enough sampling and therefore it would be all one big species? Is that what you're suggesting? Not necessarily. If, if you had the fine resolution, if you had nice sampling. So I would say one rat snake for every squared 500 kilometers of space which sounds like a lot of space but when you like lay that out over a continent that's pretty fine resolution what you'll have then is you have the whole picture you have representatives of all the different geographies okay so then when you do your analysis with rat snakes you're almost certainly going to get multiple clades or groupings but those groupings then are reflective of all the different genetic 
phenotype or sorry haplotypes is the term we use and all a haplotype is we'll revisit this term later that's a genetic signature indicative of a given population so if you have all the haplotypes in your sampling or all the population level genetics then when you run your tree it's going to reflect the reality of the situation the tree will only reflect what you put into it so if you don't have complete sampling it's it, it will still form groups it's just those groups may not actually mean anything if you had a more if you had higher resolution geographically so what makes what makes the western rat snake from the eastern rat snake what makes it drastic enough that you still feel that it is distinctly different or midland as well <laughs> it all right so there's definitely good genetic signature at least telling the story so this is the uh, of what that those three clades are so we have I think it's the Western clade, the central clade, and the Eastern clade. And then ultimately, those were elevated to the Western rat snake, central rat snake, Eastern rat snake. If you read the manuscript, which anybody can get the manuscript now, all of these rat snake papers you can download off the internet. A lot of people can get intimidated by that and they're like, I'm not a scientist, I'm not gonna understand this. Most scientific papers, if you just skip to the discussion, if you have a basic understanding of snake distributions and their biology, you're almost certainly going to be able to at least get the general gist and probably understand what the manuscript is saying. And the, the part of the puzzle that was just completely ignored <laughs> by herpetoculture based off the various podcasts I've listened to and things that I've read is that the authors of that manuscript actually explained why you have all these different color variations in the south but when you go north they all kind of converge on the one phenotype and so if you read that explanation and you understand the genetics and you have a little bit of a genetics background you can kind of go okay i see the argument that's being made here and that's kind of where i stand on it so what was said in these manuscripts is essentially 18,000 years ago, there was a giant ass glacier parked up in Canada that came down into the United States in the Pleistocene. And we always forget about the damn glacier. Like nobody remembers the glacier. That glacier is sitting where we have black rat snakes today. Okay. No black rat snakes going to be like, you know, I want to live in that glacier. So way back when our concept of a North American rat snake was isolated down in the, uh, southern part of, the, of north america which we oftentimes refer to as a glacier um as not really a glacial refugia but that's where a lot of the organisms lived in central and eastern north america because you've got like a freaking ice cap up here as that glacier retreated and keep in mind this is only eighteen thousand years ago we're not talking millions of years ago we're not even talking a hundred thousand years ago eighteen thousand years ago Okay, that glacier starts to retreat. And as it retreats, all these animals that are in the southern part of the US, they start to immigrate north. So they're heading north. But as they head north, we still have a, a period of extreme cooling. So it's not like they're moving up, the glacier went away in a year, it took it 50 to 50 to 100 years to go away. So it's cold. And basically what Bur Burbrink was the author of the manuscript, what he argues is, in the southern part of the distribution where it's not as cold, 
you don't need to be black. You can be all these different colors, and it makes sense to be the different colors because the forest floor is dappled with pine needles, sand, bark, pine cones, herbaceous vegetation. And so that's what led to that difference in phenotype that we saw. And then as the glacier re retreated, these animals from the southeast start moving up and filling the habitat. But as they're moving up, it gets cold. Sorry, it's cold there. So they all basically, it's this concept we have, convergent evolution. This is why we have sugar babies and flying squirrels, and they share the same morphology. When you move north into cold environments, it's totally advantageous to be black. So if you have a whole bunch of plasticity in your color pattern, the black individuals are the ones that are going to survive. So it doesn't matter if you're in the western clade, the central clade, the eastern clade. As you move north following this glacial period, it's cold up there. Evolution and fitness is going to preserve that black coloration, which can explain how you end up with a black western rat snake, a black central rat snake, and a black eastern rat snake. Because that phenotype is the phenotype that's advantageous if you live where it's cold. And when you look at that, you're like, oh, well, that can totally explain why they're all black. You see? But, like, that memo was never passed on to herpetoculture. It's just everyone's like, they're all the same damn thing. Why do they have three different names? And in reality, you just throw a little bit of biology in there, and you're like, oh, this is why they have three different names. This makes sense. And it's a lot cooler of a conclusion of what happened or how it happened. Um, yeah, I mean, that – that's exactly right. Like when I learned that, that made rat snakes much cooler in my book. Um, and it makes sense then using that hypothesis that when you get down into the Southern United States where it's still warm, you can totally have all these different phenotypes because that evolutionary, um, what is considered fit down there doesn't matter if you're black or not, because it's not going to get cold down there. But what really matters then is that you've got to match your phenotype to the habitat you're in. So that totally explains why you would have an Everglades rat snake, a yellow rat snake, a gray rat snake, a golf hammock rat snake. These are all living in very different ecological systems and they're just matching the environment that they're in. And that also shows genetically, that helps explain why they can totally share genetics. It's just for these snakes, when you use these genes that we use for taxonomy, uh, they're evolutionarily conserved. It just doesn't show that much of a genetic difference, even though they look radically different. So that, that was the justification for the three different clicks. Awesome. And what does that mean for hobbyists? <laughs> well, so I tell my students, I tell my son, I tell a lot of people, acceptance is key. So you can complain about it all you want. You can deny it all you want. That's not going to change the genetic result that came about. Uh, but at the same time, it's important to note the genetic still is not perfect because they don't necessarily, still to this day, that fine resolution in genetic sampling, to my knowledge, I may be wrong, could be totally wrong, hasn't been done. If you do the fine resolution, you might add populations in that middle ground that were necessary to really show the genetic difference. And then suddenly it all goes to hell. And that's what we have to accept with, with molecular taxonomy is that it, it, it's beholden on the scientists doing the study to ensure that enough genetic material is put into the analysis to actually be reflective of the entire distribution. And you aren't cherry picking because another thing that a lot of people don't realize is 
you can completely cherry pick your sampling to get the result that you want. And there are absolutely unscrupulous taxonomists that do this. Uh, not necessarily in herpetology, but there's been some some examples uh, of, of that. So there's some historical examples of scientists trying to get uh, notoriety through taxonomy. Oh, there's some, oh yeah, there's there's some examples with fish where entire river basins were left out of the analysis where the particular species lived and somehow it got published. Um, there's examples with a, a couple species of birds in the neotropics. So yeah, now the, the good news is most herpetologists are trying to do the, do the right thing. But the other thing though, is we can't complain too much because I don't know how many of the people listening have actually gone out and tried to collect in a timely manner <laughs> a rat snake from every 500 square kilometers across North America. That's an extremely daunting task. So you can't be that upset with people because uh, oftentimes getting that resolution, especially if you're working with rare taxa, um, it, it's, it's, it's not easy to accomplish. Uh, and, and, you know, when you're working with things that are hard to find on a good day and, and given this task, it, it can become quite, problematic i'm fortunate with the group i work with crayfish because the nice thing about crayfish is when you end up within their distribution they're what we call locally abundant so if i end up in a watershed and i find a narrowly distributed species even though it might have a very small distribution more times than not as long as the watershed hasn't been wrecked i can go from river to river to river to river to river and get that resolution that i need if, if i was asked to do that with snakes that would be a bit of a nightmare um so yeah, and I mean, you're talking about how little of a picture we have with the rat snakes and North American colubrids are some of the most studied mm -hmm. um, snakes in the world. What does that say for the definition of all the other species out there? Oh, it's there's a lot of work to be done. That's what it says. Uh, and a lot of times, you know, there's some people that are extremely conservative and their definition of what constitutes a species and a subspecies. Um, a lot of people are very familiar with the work that Daniel Natush did with the green tree pythons. And I'll never forget, I was actually walking, listening to, to, I don't remember which podcast it was, but it was somebody that had him on. And when I heard the genetic divergence between his subspecies, it, you know, I, I actually like tripped while walking because he was being, he was doing it right. You know, he was basically saying, I don't have this fine geographic resolution. I missed animals from this contact zone. So until that's added to the mix, I'm going to name these things as subspecies. Uh, but in reality, I'm certain that if you got the animals from that contact zone, given how genetically divergent they were, you're almost going to certainly take those subspecies and then elevate those uh, to species. But more often than not, what ends up happening is we're learning that a lot, there's a lot of phenotypic plasticity to use that word again, within the confines of a species. If you're defining species with genetics. And in the context of the green tree Python, where do you put that as a scientist or as a hobby, as a hobbyist trying to digest that? Are we calling these things species? And when do you call it as far as uh, do you think that, is that a done deal? Are there different species of green tree pythons or is that to be determined? I definitely think that, the, the conclusions he had were spot on. Um, and I like the fact that he was so conservative, but what, what Natush did that wasn't necessarily done with the rat snakes 
is he flat out said, these are likely going to be species, but until we have that evidence, we're going to call them subspecies. So he basically put all his cards on the table and let it known to the world. And what's oftentimes done there, which is good, is it's almost a challenge to the nerds like me to be like, well, I can do that. You know, and so you get some young buck out there who's like, well, I can go into wherever that was. I don't exactly know where that contact zone was. I think it was New Guinea, someplace like that. I'll go deal with the cannibals and climb up on the mountain range and get that intermediate, you know, sample to complete the story. Uh, And and that's what's really when you're in a field and that's being done taxonomically, it's really it's exciting. It's encouraging. And it, it creates a sense of community that's very similar to the sense of community we all feel. I mean, my little nerd crawdad club, if you want to call it that, <laughs> we all talk to each other, we challenge each other, we jab at each other. You know, it's no different than the way I, I watch people interact in herpetoculture. So is that cooperation and transparency, is that new? Um, yeah, it's pretty new. Uh, back in the old days, you kind of kept everything close to the vest. You know, if, if you look at the manuscripts from, you know, prior to, the mid to late nineties, a lot of times there would be like one author on the manuscript. And if you look at the same kind of paper to, and that was usually what what we call the major professor. So basically the professor who was leading the charge on this, he might've had eight or 10 grad students helping him, but we didn't give the grad students credit back then, even though they might've done most of the work. Today is a very different world uh a lot of the manuscripts that are coming out now will have it's common for them to have you know five to ten authors on it and it's just basically a way for you to show the world um this is my research group these are the people that i'm working with and you know here's our ultimate findings as a as a collaborative grouping uh that that's done far more often now than it was back in the day now there are some people who come from outside of that circle, uh, some mm-hmm. say taxonomic thieves of sorts. Um, how do you sort those people out, and who do you take serious? Uh, it's very easy to sort them out. If their name is Raymond Hoser, you just don't listen to him. It's that simple. <laughs> um, and to be honest with you, there aren't many people like that in outside <laughs> of the world of herpetology. Um, now. <laughs> Unfortunately, to, to, to play a devil's advocate here, whether we want to accept it or not, he has definitely done a couple. Now, I am not saying I'm on his team, <laughs> okay? <laughs> but what I'm saying is there's a set of rules. It's, it's you know, the, the code of zoological nomenclature, and um, it's oftentimes referred to as the code sounds very much like something from Lord of the Rings. Um, but you got to follow the code. And there's this idea in the code that we call name priority, which is basically the earliest name that recognizes a taxa is what you have to honor. So, you know, if somebody writes a manuscript and leaves some taxonomic things hanging in the air, it's totally okay for somebody to roll in, grab hold of those, and publish on them. Um, and there's been, I believe, not entirely certain, but I've, I'm, I, I believe there's been a handful of examples where Hozier has done that. And in theory, that should be honored. But I'm talking like onesies, twosies here. I'm not talking about all of it at all. What you're saying is the broken clock is right twice a day. Uh, exactly. That's yeah. exactly what I'm saying. Yes. But, uh, you know, one thing many people don't realize is I believe all of the names that were then 
you know, elevated to species level, um, Alleghenyensis, Spilotes, and Obsoletus, those were all, for the North American rat snakes, those were all names that were given back during Holbrook's time when he was presented rat snakes from different parts of the country and basically, you know, described them as unique species. So, yeah, good stuff. Oh, there we go. Yeah, here's the old the old Pantherophis uh, map here. Mm -hmm. Yes. So, but today, you know, wouldn't recognize that. So <laughs> that's just the way it is. So how does it how does it break down as far as um, renaming the new ones? So obviously we have Pantherophis um, obsoletus, and then we have Alleghenyensis and Spilotes. How do you go from these names to the new ones? Great question. So that's where we get into that naming priority I talked about with the, the zoological code of nomenclature. So what happened is when the author of the rat snake paper came up with his hypothesis that these three clades represent unique evolutionary entities, therefore they are species, you know, you don't, you don't necessarily have the ability at that point in time to just name them after your friends or just throw names out there. You have to then go go to the taxonomic literature uh, and, and basically look within the confines of your geography for a given species and see, is there a name other than the current name that was used back in time? And if there was, you have, you're supposed to, honor that name and make that the name of the new species. So in the case of those three species, um, Pantherophis, or at the time it was a Lafey, now it's Pantherophis, Alleghenyensis was a name for the Eastern rat snake. So that name, which was put forth by Holbrook, that's the name that had to be honored. So that's where, pa where Pantherophis Alleghenyensis came from. If you go back into the annals of herpetology for North America, if you go back far enough, you'll see that at one point in time, a rat snake that falls within that distribution had the name Alleghenyensis used with it. So what ends up happening is you prioritize that name and you honor it. Uh, and, and that's what ultimately was done with all of these. So that's where the names come from. And if you're wondering why did Obsoletus stick with the, I think it's the central rat snake, no, wait, it's the Western rat snakes obsoletus, right? Right. Okay. Why did obsoletus stay there? Because that's the oldest usage of the name obsoletus. It was associated with one of the populations that falls within the Western rat snakes distribution. So that's why it kept the name obsoletus, which is just part of this nerdy zoological nomenclature rules. And there's, there's all kinds of stuff. So another thing that I've heard people say is like, why did it go from obsoleta to obsoletus? Why did they have to do that? Well, when you give a, an organism a Latin name, what, what many people don't realize is even though Latin's a dead language, we still honor it and we honor its rules. And Latin names, Latin words, are oftentimes ma are, are masculine or they're feminine. And so when you combine together a species name with a genus name, those two words in concordance should be either both masculine or both feminine. And so when you add on Pantherophis, when you drop a Alephae and add Pantherophis, and then you hook onto that obsoleta, one, I don't know what it is off the top of my head, but one of those is masculine, one of those is feminine, 
Pantherophus is not going to change. That is the genus name. So you had to take the species name and augment it to the genus name. So that's where you end up with Pantherophus obsoletus. Uh, you know, that, that was done with um, bullfrogs. Bullfrogs were Rana catispiana, and then they went into the genus Lithobates, and it was one of these masculine feminine, feminine things. So now it's Lithobates catispianus, you know? So that, that little well, tweak at the end, I've heard people that really bothers some people, but that's why you have like it's part of the code. You gotta follow the rules. So that's why the species names will change a little bit. And then I guess taking it even a step back from mixing up the pantherophis, obviously a laffe for all the rat snakes, corn snakes, right? Emery rats. Um and then you have the rat snakes on the other side of the world, the Asian rat snakes with the laffe. Um, was that genetic testing? Is that what broke that up ultimately? Yes. Mm -hmm. There was a, a paper that was published in the early 2000s where they basically were trying to add resolution to the, the different to the genus Alefe at the time. And what they obviously found out, shocker, is that this group of rat snakes that's in you know, North America that doesn't really have a tie to Asia were genetically massively different than the Asian European genus Alefe. And this is where that name priority rule comes into effect again. Um, given that modern taxonomy was based out of Europe, it's not, not surprising that the first usage of the term Alefe was with a European genus of snakes. So all the Alefe are basically found within Europe and Asia. When you come over here, the first species of rat snake that was described in North America was actually the corn snake. And that's where pantherophis comes from because the person that described it thought it looked like a tiger. So panther meaning cat, ophis meaning snake. And so all the North American rat snakes um, that clayed together in that group got to honor the first name that was proposed. So the first name that was proposed was pantherophis. So that's why they're all now pantherophis. And that's why from here on out, I will refer to my corn snakes as cat snakes and yeah. you'll like it. There you go. So that, that, but, but these very basic rules of taxonomy, once you learn them, you know, and then you see all these taxonomic changes in, in, in gook, then it all kind of makes sense. Uh, but if you don't know that this is what was driving these decisions, uh, you have problems, but please don't ever think that this is over. This is never going to end until we can take the entire genome of an animal and compare the genome of this population to the genome of that population, you got the whole genetic story. That's what's really going to be necessary because the genetic markers we're using today, they're isolated to like a handful of genes. And think about all the genes that make up an organism. You can cherry pick genes. If you, if you pick a gene that mutates readily and you use it in your genetic analysis, you are going to get drastic differences. So, What's been done by taxonomists is they've had they've tried desperately to find genes that are what we call evolutionarily conserved, which basically means um, even though you're trying to find differences, you want to use genes that don't um, diversify readily. They're what we call evolutionarily conserved. So those are the genes that are used in these analyses all the time. But what's funny is what you know, we perceive to be an important genetic marker. You can add a gene and it can tell a completely different story. So that's why there's, there's a handful of biologists that argue like, why are we even doing this right now? Because the technology is going to make it obsolete in the next five to 10 years. Why don't we hold off a little bit 
uh, and wait till we get the whole picture of the right technology and move forward. And the argument against that is, you know, not to get a little bit preachy here, but we're losing biodiversity at an expedited rate. And it's super important for us to identify and describe that diversity before we lose it. Um, and so that's kind of one of the main arguments for moving forward with the technology we have, just understanding that the technology may change. And because that technology changes, you may get a completely different result once a different gene is added to the mix. So there is some, at least a touch of validity to the individual who's like, oh, I'm not going to learn that new stuff because it's going to change in five years anyway. I'd say a touch. For, for <laughs> instance, um, if you go over into Eurasia, uh, there's the genus Alephae, and that, include, uh, that included um, the beauty snakes. And then the beauty snakes, a, a different analysis was done using slightly different markers genetically. And then it showed that all the beauty snakes clated in one group. And then that's where we got the genus Orthriophis from. So you have a Leife, which would be something like a Russian rat snake, a Korean rat snake, a Japanese rat snake. And then you got the beauty snakes in Orthriophis. And, you know, I don't know how many people have seen those snakes, but if you look at a beauty snake and you look at a Japanese rat, a Russian rat, a Korean rat, there's definitely a unique morphology there, okay? And then a different genetic analysis was done, which then showed, yeah, this is bullshit. All three of us in a lay are together. And here's where the interpretation of the results is up to the reader. You know, I personally have a really hard time accepting that because I got a phenotype that is unique and makes the beauty rat snakes look drastically different than these other snakes, which look very similar, but yet drastically different from or or Orthriophis. Uh, another example using Asiatic rat snakes is, um, uh, I just forgot the genus name. The rhino rat snakes were in their own genus. Is it Gonosoma? And, yeah, well, Gonosoma is the genus they're in now. Okay. Um, mm, starts with a B, but anyway. And then an analysis was done using a very limited sample of genetic material with all the gonosoma and the rhino rat snake. And what that analysis showed was that the rhino rat snakes clated with gonosoma. And that's when the genus that rhino rats were in was sunk and then they were added to gonosoma. I have that, even though I can't remember the name of it, I have no problem honoring rhino rat snakes as being monotypic because if you know a little bit about this science, the sample size that was used in that study was ridiculously small. So they did not have the whole picture. Um, if they would have added more gonosoma and if they would have added more uh, of the rhino rat snakes, they, they very well could have had enough of a sample size to kind of drive that partition genetically. But because they were limited in their um, sampling, it, it showed that they clated together. But even them cleaning together, it was a very loose clade. So there's some people who – Rinkofis, that's it um, – that honor that genus name. And I agree with that. I totally have no problems with that because if you know a little bit about the science, you, you can, you can do that. And the authors of that paper even went so far to say this may not be so. Anytime you read a taxonomic paper where the people writing it say, yeah, this might not work. <laughs> you should probably interpret that with a little, with, with a little bit of hesitation. <laughs> so it seems like everything is up to more interpretation than most of us in the hobby think it is. I think we're yeah. all looking for a uh, definitive answer on these things and what to call them, and we don't want it to change. And that yeah, just, no. 
it's totally up for that. And then, and another thing I oftentimes hear is um, people people want there to be a certain genetic difference that's indicative of a species. So like you have this population, this population, and you look at them genetically and whatever gene you use, they're like, this one's 7% different, and this one's 1% different. Uh, the 7% are a different species, the 1% are, are different species. Initially, when this was used, uh, that was kind of the way. And I always like to ask people, where did the 5% difference equals a species come from? And a lot of people don't realize that the initial conclusions for that were based highly in just the statistics because when you use statistics if you have a five percent or greater difference between something it's statistically significant last time i checked mama nature and life didn't get the memo that they got to be five percent different to be different species and what's been done subsequently is there's all kinds of things that are absolutely recognized as species and when you look at them at, at something like um, this gene we call cytochrome oxidase one or the koi gene, that's the gene that it's also called the barcoding gene. You know, there's well known understood species that are like 2% different from each other. And they're definitely valid taxa. So the more modern approach is you kind of, and granted that those numbers matter, I'm not saying they don't, but what's more important is when you present this to the world in the form of a taxonomic tree, which is called a cladogram or a phylogeny, if all of these populations are clading together and they're always clading together, that's oftentimes more evidence for it being a unique taxa or worthy of species recognition than its actual percent difference from each other. Uh, and, and I don't think a lot of people kind of get that. So are there certain organisms that will show drastically different that are the same species when in humans maybe we're so close to a chimpanzee in comparison to a uh, bread lie to, a, yeah. to mm -hmm. a regular carbon python or whatever. There's islands in the South Pacific where there's little fruit flies flying around. And, you know, everybody's like, who the hell gives a crap about a fruit fly? Well, these people that gave a crap about fruit flies grabbed them, munched them up, threw them in a phylogenetic analysis, and they were able to show their, like, 10, 20% different from each other. You know, I mean, drastically different from each other. And if you were to use their metrics, we are gorillas and chimps, you know? So that percent difference, it's really what we say, it's it's taxon specific. You, It's it's foolish to think that one magic percentage is gonna work for all the freaking life forms on planet earth. Like each group of organisms probably has its own diversion point that constitutes speciation. So. Um, and in some groups of animals, that has been figured out. Uh, I, I don't know those off the top of my head. I just know my field of study, which is the crayfish, we don't have a percentage. Uh, our, you know, molecular phylogenetics makes my world oftentimes a million times worse than it was to begin with. We, we do the genetics and are kind of like, oh, Christ, what the hell am I looking at when we're done? Whereas the snakes and the reptiles, it seems to, amphibians too, seems to be much cleaner than it is with the inverts. So... And do we see a lot of diversity as far as percentage within a species and reptiles in comparison to other groups of animals? Um, I believe that they're kind of right on par with most vertebrates. Uh, to be honest, I'm not qualified to make that call, but the few studies that I have seen, usually people are comfortable making the call that it's a different species if it falls between three and 6%. Um, that's why when, 
you know, the green tree python came out and, you know, these different subspecies were like, I mean, the percentage was astronomical. Uh, You know, that was well within justification of species level differences. But probably the the hobby that doesn't accept the taxonomy in any. Well, here's the part. This is the bit of tough love. Science doesn't care. (laughs) <laughs> as a scientist we do not care what the science what, what herpetoculture thinks we care what the evidence says that's the difference between you know that's what oftentimes makes people not like scientists is you can voice an opinion but if we've got a line of evidence that supports our opinion and your opinion doesn't have evidence that refutes ours well tough love like you know you're wrong that's just the way it is so um yeah but within the within herpetoculture what I think people are recognizing, they don't realize it, is this concept that we call a haplotype. And a haplotype is a localized population. And those absolutely can have a unique phenotype. Um, and there's countless examples of them. And that doesn't mean it's not worth preserving with line breeding and, and you know, maintaining a location. Uh, and that's what we're doing in herpetoculture. It doesn't, you know, people get upset that we can no, no longer use the word, you know, Lindheimeri for Texas rat snakes. Doesn't mean you can't recognize a Texas rat snake. You know, that common name still applies. Um, but you just have to recognize the fact that the science doesn't support recognizing those subspecies anymore using the evidence that they provided. Yeah, I, I, so I just saw, I'm assuming it was Justin put up 11% divergence. Uh, be so that's insane. That's absolutely insane. And for the people that would argue, but they look the same. Well, of course they look the same. Evolution's acting on those populations in the same way. It's called convergent evolution. You know, they're not going to just magically turn red. You turn red in the rainforest, your ass is going to get eaten by a monitor. So you have to stay green because the green keeps you safe. Um, That doesn't mean internally there aren't massive differences. You know, we don't really think about it, but one of the differences that could drive speciation could be the enzymes in your brain and the digestive enzymes you use to digest your food. Yeah, you can't see those enzymes, but that could be what we what actually is the character state that separates this species from that species. You know, it could be something that we aren't even thinking of. Uh, and if that's the case, that can totally explain why you would have a, a conserved phenotype that's not radically changing over time. In space. Hey, we're just we're still calling them chondros, so that's fine. That's what deal. <laughs> so when it when it comes to understanding how to talk about these things, how to preserve them in the hobby, how do we uh, how do we change these norms as just regular hobbyists? How do we call things by the right thing and not? Because I think a lot of the times, if someone was to do it in in chondros and green tree pythons, I think. Uh, they would just get a whole bunch of flack for it. Yeah. Well, the first thing is you have to be willing to take the flack. You know, stand up for it. I stand up for it. Be a nerd. Defend the science. And, and if you defend the science, here's another thing. I know a lot of people get a little bit uptight because they're like, the scientists don't take us seriously. Well, let's think about this. You're a scientist. You've dedicated your entire life to rat snake systematics. You know that story I just told you about how 
You could have the converged phenotype because you're moving up into an area where glaciers used to be. You've got genetic evidence that points towards all of this. You've examined 10,000 rat snakes in museums. And then you write this paper, you've got all this backing for your hypothesis. And then you present it to someone who breeds these things in their basement and they look at you and go, you're full of shit. <laughs> you're gonna totally, as a scientist, be like, really? I'm the one that's full of crap? I've literally spent the past eight years of my life, 80% of my time, I've looked at every bit of evidence I possibly can, and you're just basically saying I'm full of crap, but you didn't, you don't have any concept of what the hell I did. You know, that's the problem. So what I would say we do within the field of herpetoculture is just simply say something like, well, these used to be Texas rat snakes. Lindheimer I, Lindheimer I had A, B, and C, which defined it. Now they're Lathe obsoletus, but we're going to recognize that uniqueness at the population level, okay? But to just flat out say, it's garbage, they don't know what the hell they're doing, you know, that's when you're going to get massive pushback. And as a scientist, I don't care who you are as a hobbyist, the nerds of the world, the scientists that have dedicated their lives to this, they're going to crush you in an argument. Absolutely. And I, you know, I don't care if that ruffles feathers. It's just a fact. Yeah. I understand the magnitude of effort it takes to do this work. I mean, it's not something you just do in a weekend. Um, it, it takes months, years, uh, and there's a lot of science backing it. So you, you can totally recognize all the subspecies of rat snakes. You can breed all the subspecies of rat snakes. Just at the end of the day, you got to know there's evidence currently that there's three species because we don't have strong evidence to honor the subspecies at the scientific level, but within the hobby level, we can honor them. It's really that simple. It doesn't have to be more, doesn't have to be combative, doesn't have to be complicated. It's all you gotta do. Now, when we're talking about, um, we're talking about geographical earlier about the rat snakes, you have mountains and stuff like that, but also say when you're talking about the Florida Keys with some of the rosy rats, uh, mm -hmm. You obviously have water in between them. You have in Indonesia, you see it a lot. In uh, Central America, you see a lot of island populations of boas. Is it simply the selective pressures that are speciating these animals? So say they're exactly the same as the, the mainland animals. Mm -hmm. And then over time, some speciate, some don't. Yeah. So what we call those populations, when you have a subpopulation that splits from the main population, that's what we refer to as a vicariant event. That's the technical term for it. And it's sometimes just simply referred to as vicariants. Um, and what ends up happening with that is that splintered off population, subpopulation, vicariant population, whatever you want to call it, just by the sheer nature of it no longer being part of the main population, it's now going to have its own evolutionary tendencies and fates. So what is deemed fit on this island may not necessarily be what's deemed fit on the mainland. And so what's going to end up happening is the selection pressures are going to be different. And over time, you're going to start to get a manifestation of the, the potential of a new phenotype. And anytime you get a phenotype manifesting itself as unique, you're almost certainly going to have a unique genotype. And the genotype is the actual genes and the manifestation of those genes is the phenotype, okay? And this can happen much faster than people previously thought. You know, we you, back in the, the day, you were taught like evolution takes millions of years. Well, there's this idea called punctuated equilibrium, which 
basically says that evolution is going to happen rapidly because if you think about it, like if you don't become fit quick, you die. <laughs> you don't really have the luxury of time. Um, and we now know that certain genes will mutate rapidly and manifest themselves and get, you know, basically become the norm a little faster than we thought. So that's where you get things like gigantism, dwarfism, um, the blanching of colors. But all it takes for that to go away and not be recognized genetically is another vicarian event where those mainland individuals are then deposited on the island again because they're going to bring the mainland genes with them to the island and then you can get a ge genetic swamping which is what kind of keeps that mainland influence and a potential example don't know if it's the best example but it is an example would be something like a hog island boa because hog island boas have a unique phenotype um but the island i think it's off the coast of uh my geography's i'll look it up northern south america um but Every now and then, through rafting, you get a boa out there, which brings those mainland genes with it, and that's what's keeping that tr keeping the isolation from happening. So when you look at them genetically, they have a unique signature, but it's not unique enough to describe them as their own taxa. So, is this Hog is Island off of Guyana? No. There's a lot of hog islands I've been looking at. Uh, <laughs> one in Philadelphia, so I, I had to go through a few. But, I mean, boa guy. Where are the boa guys at? Oh, my God. But there you're seeing an island population that have less access to food, so they're smaller, or what is... Uh... Yeah, so, well, what's kind of funny is that... Um, they're not as small as people think they are. And in the wild, they can get kind of large, which many people don't realize. Um, now, granted, they're not going to get the size of like boa constrictor by any stretch of the imagination, but um, they, they, they can get like up into the six foot range. But what's controlling their size there is just the limited resources of the island. Um, fitness is acting upon the animals that can live in that very dense shrubbery you find on the hog islands. So, that's what's happening there. And then that unique phenotype is probably a response to the coloration of the rocks and the, you know, uh, the herbaceous vegetation, things like that. So yeah, there we go. But I believe it's Boa nebulosa is one of these island populations that was shown to have some genetic distinctiveness. So we recognize that because the gene showed it was di dichot that it was different enough to warrant species recognition. So there you go. But but that's what's happening. I I didn't I didn't know about and Bo is one of those things that really got a big mix up recently, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Warren Booth was one of the authors on that. We all know him. Great paper, by the way. Basically, took all the subspecies of boas and put them into boa sigma boa constrictor and boa imperator so sigma's up in mexico the northern part of the distribution imperators throughout central america and then along the um western coast of south america west of the andes and then everything east of the andes was constrictor but that's another great example of a snake that had a whole slew of subspecies mm -hmm. and i am certain when the paper came out 
You know, if you're if you have Amarilli, Bolivians, and Longicata, you're not going to suddenly be like, "Well, crap, I'm just not going to recognize these anymore." They totally still line breed them, and it's okay. You know, I locality bows is one of my things. You know, I, I have multiple races of Imperator that at one time were recognized as subspecies. We just simply recognize them as the same species, but we honor the fact that that species has unique haplotypes, population level genetics that manifest themselves in a unique phenotype and i like the phenotype so i'm going to breed it yeah that's that's what you do for every reason we have a hard time <laughs> having both be simultaneously true so i'm going to yeah. call this just basically for phenotype and for fun mm-hmm. uh, and i know that it's really that but yeah. then i'm worried about people not taking the label seriously and mixing them all together when we should really just have our fun with the stuff that we named yeah, everybody should just relax is what should happen. But it's hard for people to do that. A great I mean, we've talked about this earlier, but here's a great example. Bull snakes. You know, there's a red bull snake that lives in uh, in, in I believe it's West Texas, the red phenotype. There's the Kankakees, okay, up in the sand hills of or sorry, the, the sandy prairies of Illinois. Um, they were never given subspecific status, okay? No one has a problem saying I'm breeding you know, Kingsville Reds or I'm breeding Kankakees. That's no different than saying I'm breeding golf hammock rats or rosy rats. It's the exact same concept. They just have that localized haplotype level variation. Uh, so people don't lose their crap over the bull snakes. But if you don't recognize the subspecies of rat snakes, people are losing their damn minds. You know, it's the exact same concept. Um, and, and genetically... Actually, I don't know if bull snakes have had a massive upheaval. It could come out that the Kankakees are their own species, you know, ultimately. Uh, look what happened with, with uh, corn snakes and emery rats. When the genetics was done, Slinsky eye popped out. The golf hammock rat snake, I think that's what it is. And nobody was recognizing that as unique. Everybody just called them emery. And, and now... Um, I, I personally have Fluensky eye in my collection. I think the story behind them is awesome. Um, they're a really cool evolutionary story as well, and that's why I have them, and, and that's just all we got to do. But if you understand the science behind these things and the story the science is telling, it actually oftentimes makes these animals much, much more interesting. So I guess uh, if we could dig deeper, there's that region seems to have a few things going on as far as whether it be Pituophis, whether it be Pantherophis. So you have Pituophis ruthenii in Louisiana, which was originally it was originally uh, was it Mel- what's the uh, the species name for for pine Melanolucus. Melanolucus, that's how you say it. And then it was Melanolucus ruthenii, and then the black was also Melanolucus. Um, Loading eye. Okay, yeah, there you go. Mm-hmm. So, and then you have these elevated to full species, and then you have something like Slewinski eye that was thought to be an integrate of a corn snake and an emery rat snake, and you have a small pocket. And it seems like those three species are in small pockets. How do you get yes. these small speciated um, so I would encourage any colubrid nerd, any herp nerd, if you've got a group of animals that you really like, whether you want to accept it or not, you got to nerd out with some geography. Uh, and, and there's a term for when you're nerding out about geography and it has to deal with animals. It's called zoogeography. 
and anybody that's a, a hardcore naturalist or um, biologist, especially in my line of work, you know, we completely lose our crap over mountain ranges and rivers and and all of and the other thing that we got to understand, which I mentioned at the beginning, is eighteen thousand years ago, this place was a little different. Um, there was a lot of oceanic water locked up in glaciers. So what we con what we believe to be the coast wasn't the coast. That was inland. And the coastal plain expanded way out into the Gulf of Mexico. So with animals like Sawinskii, Lodingi, Ruthenii, their distributions actually went out into the Gulf way back when. And the reason why they have these narrow distributions is as those glaciers retreated um, and sea levels rose, what used to be their habitat got inundated by the ocean. And, and the result of that is you end up with these little pockets of hyperdiversity down along our Gulf Coast Plain. So you have a lot of diversity in that area of Western Louisiana, Eastern Texas. You've There's another zoogeographic uh, feature down there that's real important that today you drive over it, I believe when you're on I-10 and Eastern, sorry, in, in the Panhandle Florida, you don't even think about it. That's the Apalachicola River. What many people don't realize is during the last ice age, that was a freaking sound. It was a bay. And salt water went up that river you know, clear into Georgia. And that was a huge zoogeographic boundary line. And when the river went down and all that kind of stuff and it all receded, um, the end, end result is what we have today. But there's a tremendous number of animals that when you look at them, they have a distribution that comes right up to the western part of the Apalachicola River and stops. And then there's another species that comes up to the eastern part of the Apalachicola and stops. And this explains why that Apalachicola region of the eastern panhandle of Florida is so diverse with herps. It's, it's a place that many herpers put on their, you know, I got to go there before I die list in North America. And, and that's exactly why. This zoogeography stuff is important. So that's what was going on um, with that particular area with Slowinskii, Lodingi, Ruthveni. It, it makes total logical sense. But here again, People don't know that story. So a taxonomic paper comes out elevating loading eye, elevating roof and eye, and describing a new species of corn snake. And the gut response of many people in herpetoculture is, I've seen these things my whole life. That's crap. But they don't understand that story. They don't understand the genetics involved. They don't understand the morphology involved. They don't understand the geography involved. When you put all that together, that's what makes it so. Not the fact that some guy just looked at it and was like, they're different. There's a whole bunch backing that. Um, it makes it pretty cool in the end. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that is, um, I think we, we look at those things, we look at the animals that we have in the hobby, we look at the maps and everything, but we don't know exactly why, uh, when my Emory eye looks just like my excellent. <laughs> so, so why is it, um, can we explain some of the, like, like my buddy, Chris, when we're talking about the Emory eye that are in that particular part of Texas, um, and then you have your embryo that are all the way in Colorado. There's very distinct differences there morphologically. Uh, is that kind of that haplotype type of thing? It's that haplotype, and it's a recent invasion. So basically, it's only been in the past 25,000 years that those animals have immigrated up and down. And when they did an initial immigration, you know, the world may have been a little bit different back then. So they were able to get there. They got isolated and you end up getting these unique phenotypes. Now, there's one thing that we do need to talk about, which we haven't talked about yet. And 
people have a tendency to think that, you know, when you're looking at a given animal in nature or a population of animals, we have a tendency to think that this is the definitive form of that animal evolutionarily. But in reality, you might be looking at it very early on in the speciation process. So if you're looking at it when it's early on in that process, or maybe halfway through that process, it might have a unique phenotype, but genetically it doesn't show the genetic difference indicative of that phenotype. You were, if you were to come back a million years later, could be totally possible that that is its own species now. And so what we call that condition, when you kind of have a, a, a population that's in the process of speciating, that's what's referred to as an incipient species. Uh, and it's quite likely, it, well, I don't know, quite likely, that might be too much. It's possible that many of these localized populations we see might be in the process of speciation. And that's another reason why it's worthy of recognizing them. Okay, but currently they don't have the genetic isolation or they haven't been isolated long enough to show that genetic signature indicative of a new species. So that could be what's going on with your like intermontane rats and whatever the hell that subspecies of MRI is in is it West Texas or something like that near Corpus Christi. Um, they might look dra dramatically different, but they could be very, very early on in the speciation process. And now I haven't heard you say the word integrate once uh, <laughs> when, I mean, these areas of uncertainty, I think at one point would be on a range map as integrate. Um, what's the difference between something, you know, going through the process that you just explained and integrating? So, so the term integrate zone was oftentimes used for subspecies. So basically, if you have a subspecies and you think about rat snakes, rat snakes in the extreme, if we were to go back and honor the old names, so all the different subspecies, those different subspecies were all, if you actually look at the map, they were kind of all on like extreme ends of the map. So you have like these southern, southwestern, you know, Lindheimeri, Texas rats, and then you go all the way over to the east coast and you have a, what was it, Quadrivitata, the yellow rat snakes. You know, and then when you kind of go into the middle, that's when you would hit Spiloides, which was the gray rat snake. Um, well, when you get near a yellow rat and a gray rat together, they kind of blur together. And so if you're honoring the subspecies, you would say integrate zone because it's an integration of the two phenotypes. It's a little bit yellow rat, little bit gray rat. That's why that integrate zone was used. If you don't honor the subspecies and your idea of a species is clade one, clade two, clade three, you don't give a crap about integrate zones because there's no subspecies, so they're not integrating. The difference is this zone of uncertainty, <laughs> which sounds way more dramatic than it needs to be. You could also argue that that is a integrate zone. So using the rat snakes as a great example, the, um, the eastern rat snake and the central rat snakes, if you actually read the manuscript, the authors flat out say that in the northern part of these two distributions, there is a contact zone, and the genetic difference isn't as extreme as it is when you get to the easternmost part of the eastern rat snake and the westernmost part of the central rat snake, okay? That would be that zone of uncertainty. And, you know, it's up to your interpretation as to how you're going to mentally digest that. Some people have mentally digested that to basically mean this is garbage because they're coming together. So if you're using genetic isolation as your argument for speciation and you flat out say in the paper, the two come together and it's really hard to tell them apart genetically. That's totally an argument to sink 
this idea. And that's the, the scientists who don't honor this species, you know, hypothesis. That's their argument is that there's, there's this drastic contact zone between these two uh, species and there's obvious gene flow going between them. Um, so why do we honor this? Uh, and the reality of that is, I know people that flat out are in herpetology and they just say it's all obsoleta. You know, th th that's just what they do. Um, and that's totally okay. That's the thing people don't realize is I'm a, as a scientist, I decide. Now, in North America, we really like rules and regulations. So there's a, a body, if you will, the Society for the Study of Amphibians and Reptiles, SSAR. And, and they actually put out a master checklist using, of all the approved common names and species names. And most herpetologists today in North America, they don't want to get in this fight. They don't have a dog in it. They don't you know, want to ruffle feathers. They just simply go to the list, and whatever the list says is what they're going to agree to. And, and that's what's been done. You know, That's the reason why the rat snakes have been I believe adopted because I'm I'm fairly positive in that list, it's Pantherophis and then the three taxa. So can we accept the fact that they may be more distinct throughout maybe the southern or the central mm -hmm. range of everything that's going on? Um, yes. And then for the north, the water just get a little bit murky. Is it okay to? Oh, it's murky. That happens because it's nature and. Yeah, I mean and that's what lots of people don't understand is that you know as the guy who describes species there's nothing more difficult than somebody asking me the question what's a species i mean you lose sleep at night if you're an ecologist or a zoologist and if you've been tasked with describing species uh these things don't evolve in this perfect little box to meet our definitions because there's so much entropy in nature that by sheer default it's more gray than black and white. So a lot of people that do taxonomy and systematics, if you had to typecast them as a personality, they've got elements of type A, but they're very type B. Because if you want a black white definition, it's just, it rarely will it happen. If you really start digging into wide ranging species, I'm not talking about things that are monotypic and there's only one like rainbow snakes or mud snakes. Um, but with these wide ranging you know, species groups, it it gets very murky quick. And that's the norm. That, that's something many people don't realize. And is that something that we need to reflect? Well, I guess it doesn't matter if we reflect it in the hobby or not. Mm -mm. So, no. No, I'm, I'm not here to lay down any rules for anybody. I'm just here to give a perspective that might not be given all that often because Unfortunately, there's lots of academics that aren't willing to get into this seat and talk to the herpetoculture community, and, and I'm totally willing to do that. But I, I, I've heard many a person get, you know, I can tell their blood pressure is up as they're talking about this. And in the end, all the species is is a hypothesis. And hypothesis, hypotheses can be refuted or denied. And that's it. Now, uh, Ryan asked a, a loaded question, but do you, do, do you consider Morelius Belota, all the carpet pythons, do you consider them one species? So I don't know enough about the story to answer that definitively. 
and I would totally default to whatever the hell, you know, Nick Mutton and company have to say, because they're the ones studying the group. But most of the evidence I've seen makes these subspecies very, very weak, um, especially the animals up in the top end. So when, when you're dealing with um, Shane Eye, um, Dark, Darwin, which one, which, her, no, whatever one the Darwin carpet is, um, Harris and I, like Harris and I is garbage. <laughs> that, you know, I like Poplins. Those are the carpets I personally keep. But what y'all need to remember is it wasn't that long ago, 18,000 years roughly, we had glaciers that sucked up oceans and the northern part of Australia was directly connected to Papua New Guinea. That's how the carpets got there in the first place. They probably haven't been isolated long enough. And you get the right storm, you can get carpet pythons rafting out to sea. Uh, and, and a lot of people think it's got to be thousands. It doesn't have to be thousands. You know, it can be tens to hundreds. And that's all that's needed to get that Australian DNA up to New Guinea and then integrate it back into those populations. So I will default to whatever the people working on that, but I would not be the slightest bit surprised if when the hardcore science comes out, if a lot of the subspecies are not recognized. And, and like jungles, that's a great example. Um, in the in herpetoculture, people think a jungle is this, like you said, bright yellow snake and it's black. If you go on the iNaturalist and look at carpet pythons from where they are, you know, they're dirt snakes. They're like, dirt brown or yellowish brown. We've just done so much selective breeding that we're maximizing that particular phenotype. And that's why in a hobby, there's this perception they're drastically different. But out in nature, if you're that bright of yellow and that dark black, you're gonna stick out like a sore thumb. That's too extreme. So that that's my um, stance on that. Can somebody please, it's driving me crazy, say what the subspecies of Darwin carpets is? Uh, is it variegata or is that what the poplins called? No, poplins, Harris, and I, variegata, I believe, is, um, could be very, no, I don't know. Darwin carpet. <laughs> that's funny. It's just coming up with Spilota. Yeah, variegata is what's. Variegata. Yeah, that's it, I think. So, no. But, like, if you think about this, though, the same story we're telling with the rat snakes can be told with carpet pythons. So coastals, they're the largest, one of the largest phenotypes, right? Or sorry, subspecies. Where do they live? Brisbane's live down in Southern Australia. In Australia, everything's flipped. Farther south you go, the colder it is. Diamonds are the largest, you know, among the largest subspecies. They're also black and white. Why are they black? The exact same reason our black rat snakes are black. They're the southernmost populations, and it's flipping cold where they live. So, you know, you've got this continuum. If there's no geographic barrier denying genes, then you're going to have a cline that's going to connect the diamond to the coastal uh, and, you know, up the coast of Australia. I know there's a gorge in eastern Australia that does serve as a fairly decent you know, zoogeographic barrier, and, and that's where you see the genetic difference. But anyway, and why why is it such a busy area for herpetologists and stuff like that? Why does everyone want to go over there? Is it because they it has the big python species? 
Yeah. Oh, it has the big python species. It has the elapids, and there's still species to be described. Um, but not all. I mean, every herpetologist has to go to Australia. It's like obligatory, mainly because it's one of the few continents on our planet that reptiles really were dominant occupiers of many of the niches or niches <laughs> uh, present in, in those ecosystems. Um, I mean, they had like Megalania running around when people were running around and uh, you know, that was the largest lizard ever. Uh, but I know plenty of herpetologists though, you know, in the hobby, no one ever talks about South America. If someone were to give me a blank ticket and they could say, you can go anywhere on the planet to look for herps. I don't know if I'd go to Australia. I would, I'd go to South America. Um, now granted, I like my dipsadids. I like my false water cobras and barons racers and museranas. So, you know, that's, what's going to drive that decision for me. So. Yeah, I never really 100% understood why. And I guess maybe it's just the farness of it, the fact that, you know, things like bolins, things like scrub pythons, um, tan bars, all those cool things are uh, so popular. But then again, like Kribos and stuff, yeah. really, no one's really that into it. I feel like that's changing a little bit, but still not really gaining the steam. of. Yeah, it's changing a little bit, um, but that's definitely my bag. So, you know. I'm going to Paraguay. There's people that don't even know where the hell Paraguay is, <laughs> but it, I didn't know exactly where it was until about two years ago, but that's where I'm going. If I get a chance to go anywhere to look for herbs. And now this is interesting. Uh, Minty scales says, how do you feel about gene editing in the reptile hobby? I'm, I'm assuming that means just picking out things for, you know, type or. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know the exact definition of gene editing in this particular instance because there's like this thing called CRISPR where you can quite literally go in and change genes um but i'm assuming that that's just line breeding or, or breeding a particular trait and you know this is where it, it's up to individual people i have a i've always my personal view you know i'm not policing anybody you're all allowed to think whatever you want i i don't really get into the morph thing i as a conservation biologist, I was always trained to maintain as diverse a gene pool as possible. And so the idea of getting like two albinos out of a clutch and their brother and sister, and then now we've got a morph and we're going to breed these things in perpetuity. I, I just, that, that just doesn't do it for me. And, you know, scale of snakes. What the hell is that about? Like, no. So like I have issues with that, but you can, you can breed your scale of snakes. I'm just never going to do it. Um, uh, and I really don't like when we narrow the gene pools down and we get things like neuro and jags, jaguar carpets or, you know, similar neuro and motley boas or uh, bug eyes and various rat snakes. And this whole idea that we're going to breed that out, that's yeah. impossible. You only have X amount of genes to work with. And if you add more genes, you're going to swamp out the phenotype you want. Um, but it, it, it's been a little bit refreshing in the past couple of years listening on podcasts and reading things. And it seems like that realization starting to hit. Uh, and it's an, that's where ethics kind of gets into play. So I don't think it's worth having a snake that potentially could suffer because we think it looks pretty, you know, where we could have a more genetically robust animal and be relatively certain that it's doing better than that narrow gene pool that the particular animals come out of.
Well, we're, and we're starting to see kind of the fruits of our labor over the last 20 years. If you look at um, how many YouTubers have made videos of eyeless ball pythons, yes. <laughs> uh, you know, albinos in particular, mm-hmm. uh, we're seeing the very effects of what I would at least consider, at least if there's smoke, there's fire, that's probably mm-hmm. uh, probably inbreeding that's causing these yeah. kind of defects. And they're doing it as a gimmick to get views instead of saying, Hey, we should probably uh, get some more beans in here or yeah. things or how do we fix this? Yeah, no, that that's the side of herpetoculture. I just try not to acknowledge and try to ignore, but at the same time, it is, you know, it, it does kind of show that there, there is something to be said about inbreeding. You know, there's this idea that inbreeding happens in nature. And it's true. You can totally get populations where you start with a narrow gene pool in nature. And that's what the animals had to work with. And then they're able to somehow manifest themselves. But there's a lot of time that goes on usually in that process. And you've got multiple generations and you've kind of essentially converged on the exact perfect genetics, you know, but what many people don't realize is that is the exception. That is not the rule. That's like one in a trillion when that actually occurs. The norm is when you have that narrow gene pool, some deleterious gene pops up in nature, and then everybody dies out. Uh, and so it's kind of this Russian roulette. When I hear people say, well, you know, reptiles are, do inbreeding in, in nature. We can do it here. It's not that big a deal. And then you end up having bug-eyed snakes and wobbles and all that kind of stuff. We're keeping all of them alive. We're not letting the evolutionary process decide who should die and who should live. So in effect, it's artificial selection. It is not the same thing as what's happening out on that island. You know, it, it's not comparable in, in that regard. So. So let's just be honest about it. Get your lotion ready and lube up your scaleless ball pythons. Yes, there you go. I mean, how many scaleless populations of snakes do we have in nature? Well, <laughs> There's not some island that I know of that has scaleless boas on it. You know, that's just not happening um, because they need those scales to keep the moisture in. Otherwise, they're going to desiccate and die. So. And that's the side of, of herpetoculture I just have absolutely no interest for. Um, I, I like making sure my animals are as unrelated as possible. And, and oftentimes you can't do that. And if that's the case, I just don't breed them. You know, that's that's the, the deal. I took great liberty in making sure the water false water cobras I have came from, you know, some came from European lines, some came from American lines. I tried to go back in time as much as possible to figure out where the progenitor stock came from. Um, so I'm relatively confident that for those animals, I have a robust, uh, you know, populations. I, I have a lavender, which is kind of like, ooh, the ultimate morph. I might not ever breed the thing because it's a genetic nightmare. That thing will not grow. <laughs> Water cobras grow like weeds. And I've had this thing for three years um, and it's four feet. And I have all the other water cobras I have that are three years old are eight feet. You know, they're literally twice the size. Uh, so, but that's just my priority. If other people want to do it, do it. Nothing wrong with that. The only thing from my perspective is that I have plenty of genes that I've worked <laughs> with that I've noticed 
have issues and it's not necessarily upfront and people don't tell you and mm-hmm. you buy these things and you breed them and then you find out for yourself. And then if you say anything, you're kind of uh, a problem. So you just, yeah. but uh, I would argue that's, you know, that's wrong. We should just be able to freaking talk to each other. Um, yeah. I, I did a podcast recently with uh, Justin and company about crypto and yeah, you know, when I did that pocket, you'd be amazed at how many people messaged me. Hey, keep it, keep it silent. I got crypto. What do I do? And some of these names were huge. And if they're selling snakes to everybody and they're telling me they got crypto, this is why crypto is everywhere. It's the same thing with the genetics. Yeah. If you see something that's wrong or there's a wobble, it's just very disingenuous to be like, it doesn't matter. Even though the carpet python can't keep its head up and is always on its back, you know, there's a problem there. And then the other thing to that, it, when we get into these, you know, this side of herpetoculture, the people that want to take away this from all of us, they're going to latch on to the fact that they're making snakes that don't have eyes and they're making snakes that can't digest things. And they're making snakes whose eyeballs bulge out. Uh, and, and that's something I've often thought of, like, why aren't we as a group recognizing that? I mean, they legitimately, whether we want to accept it or not, do have a point. Um, I, Great example. If I say that. Oh, go ahead. If I say that, then I'm attacking someone's business, and then it all becomes into a whole sob story in which the whole hobby turns on you. Yeah, well, I had grad students go to the, the local reptile show this past weekend. It's funny you were talking about the scaleless snakes. These are biology-oriented people. They're not anti-reptile keeping at all. They're getting ready to get into herpetoculture, and – the running conversation in our chat was, why the F do people have scaleless snakes? What the hell is this? This is a thing? Like, it completely blew their brains that this was something that was being promoted because they understand uh, the biology, and it's a welfare thing. I mean, yeah. it just is a welfare thing, whether we want to accept it or not. Snakes have scales for a reason. Um, and so it just kind of, I don't know, it just – it. it, it it adds an argument to a side that we don't want to have to have an argument and we're perpetuating it. So unpopular opinion, but it is what it is. Yeah. There's plenty of times where if we applied these ethics elsewhere, they would be very frowned upon, but we mm-hmm. either put them aside or we skimp over them or don't notice yeah. them. Act yeah. like they exist. And then yeah. you put them off the project to someone else. And then, <laughs> yep. <laughs> yes. So, you know, it, it is what it is, but, but, you know, that's the case. So do we have uh, anything to add from the taxonomy portion that we didn't hit? No, just, you know, closing thoughts, species are hypotheses. There's multiple definitions of what constitutes a hypothesis. There are totally ways for everybody listening to this to get their hands on these manuscripts. You know, I have no problem if people find, a, you know, there's a manuscript they want to find. Find me on social media. Super simple to find. It's Zach Loafman in Facebook, Zach Loafman in Instagram. And then write me a message and say, hey, could you help me get this paper? I'm more than happy to do that. I feel like my role or my niche is just to take the resources I have available to me and share them to as many people as possible. So um, sorry about the ranty thing. If you got upset with me about the scaleless cord snakes, that's something that I just, 
really have a hard time accepting. Um, but you know, it is what it is. We gotta we gotta look at what we're doing and and police ourselves a little bit. I think. How dare you suggest such a thing? Yeah, you know, I don't know why on earth we would possibly want to do that to ensure we have a hobby tomorrow. <laughs> well, no, I think it's usually used in a different context in which is like, yeah, we usually say self-policing with like, don't put up feed videos, don't <laughs> up, uh, don't feed your dog to a uh, Burmese python <laughs> or anything like that. But we don't really use it towards our actions in which are like towards the welfare of the animal maybe. Um, and that can go anywhere. And I hate to bring it up like tubs to caging to different norms in the industry in which we have, uh, kind of justified doing things a certain way for a certain amount of time. Yes. And the one thing we can end on is, yeah, I'm about to like purge social media for a little while because I'm in a lot of groups. I, this is my way of enjoying relaxing at the end of the day. And one of the things that drives me insane, insane, is when people say, well, I got 30 years of experience. I know exactly what I need to do. And I'm going to keep doing things the way I've done it for 30 years. And I'm not denying that you've got 30 years of experience. You've got 30 years of experience breeding an animal that is one hell of an accomplishment uh, uh, you know, that you can totally be proud of. But everybody can learn. You know, when you think you're done learning, that's when the possibility of coming up with something new and novel or figuring out a better way to do something, it just ends at that point. So it's okay if you're into the way you do things, but everybody, including myself, should be willing to listen to what other people have to say. And if somebody presents something that is better than your way of doing it and they've got evidence to support it, why not try it? There's nothing wrong in trying it. Um, that's an aspect of, of herpetoculture, especially with snake people that it, it's just, it, it's crazy that we would be willing to stagnate ourselves when there's all these new technologies available, strategies available, you know, and then another thing, like if you're a breeder and you keep your animals in tubs, there's a reason why you keep your animals in tubs, but you shouldn't necessarily shut down someone who wants to keep their animal in a PVC enclosure. It's their animal. At the same time, if you want to keep your animal in the PVC enclosure and another guy has it in a tub, don't go on a preaching fit <laughs> and tell them they suck at life. You know, everybody has the ability to do things their own way in the end. And that's what drives me crazy with all this stuff. But now we're just getting preachy. That's what's happening. <laughs> we've, we've entered that slippery slope and we're heading down. It, so. <laughs> well, now I hope... Uh... It's funny because a lot of it is like, uh, don't take this too seriously. This is a fun hobby. Uh-huh. Same time, you know. Uh, yeah, people take it pretty damn seriously for not taking it too seriously. Yeah, so. yeah. Yeah, and I mean, uh, we're all a part of it. I I love being a part of it as crazy as mm-hmm. it is and doesn't seem to make sense every uh, all the time. But. Yeah. Where do you, um, as far as what you have going on, where can people check out uh, what you got going on and kind of explain a little bit of what you do in your program? Um, yeah, so I say this at the end of every podcast, um, but you can see it right here. Well, right here. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, I'm the 
zoo science and applied conservation coordinator for West Liberty University. We have this major called zoo science. There's totally a herpetoculture aspect to it. So anybody listening that graduated with a four-year degree and wants to get a master's degree, I now am at the point where I have enough graduate students. I actually have a lab. The lab's called the Evidence-Based Herpetoculture Lab. And um, yeah, if you want to do your master's degree, you can do it remotely, work with your collection. You know, where there's a will, there's a way. And then if you actually want to come to West Liberty and do your grad degree, we have over 200 herps here. So um, everything from a seven-foot water monitor down to, you know, little itty-bitty geckos. So you can do that. You're, so you can see me there. Um, I have a Facebook page. I've got an Instagram page. I've, I've decided that my Instagram page is just going to be animals. That's it. So about once every three or four days, I post up a picture of something either here at school or at my home collection. Um, if I can ever get outside again, I'll in start including like wild animals to that. Uh, but yeah, those are the two ways. And then message me. Uh, and then if you look me up online, you can find my email and you can email me directly. But always looking for graduate students. And if you're in high school, come here for college because, you know, that's where it's at. You can take herpetoculture. As far as I know, it's an undergrad class. Yes, as far as I know, it's the one of the few herpetoculture classes at a four-year college. There's a handful of herpetoculture classes at some community colleges. Uh, ours is at a four-year college, but it's one of the few herpetoculture classes that we have in the states. So nice. Yeah. So we can we can take all this information in this podcast to a certain degree of uh, certainty that you know what you're talking about. Yeah, I've, I've named a couple things, so <laughs> no. And, and go check out uh, the two other podcasts I did with Zach because those are just as informative and uh, entertaining. Zach, of course, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for being uh, a third-time guest. Uh, no problem. I absolutely love doing this. It's 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 just fun. So I'll do it anytime, any day of the week. So thank you, Joe. <laughs> yeah, no problem. As for us, portcitypet.com, Focus Cubed Habitats, please go check that out. Go check out Zach's program. All the uh, the animals at home was just on here earlier, and he commented, I think Zach's done more podcasts than me this month, which is <laughs> was very true for me, myself, but you've been on, uh, you've done the rounds recently. I have. It, it kind of all blew up over winter break, and it was funny because when people asked me to do it was when I actually had the time to do it. So I was like, well, what the hell? I might as well give it a go. So there you go. Rarely does that ever work out that way. Yeah, but... It's not worked out that way. No, <laughs> I have to do two field seasons because COVID shut me down last summer. So once March hits, I'm going to be living out of a hotel room until September. So. Still going down to the Sandhills? Yeah, going to the Sandhills, going to the Apps. Appalachian Mountains, um, going over into Philadelphia, so I'll be in your neck of the woods. Uh, and I am going down to um, the Savannah River, right on the border of South Carolina. There's a, a forest there where we have some work to do. So always fun to kind of combine the the crayfish with the reptiles and amphibians. So, and then yeah. Paraguay, 20, 2022? What was that? Paraguay? Yeah, well... See, I'm writing this book, and, and the book is The Complete Guide to Hognose Snakes and Their Allies. And the allies part is barons, racers, muserannas, false water cobras, tricolored hogs, like all those dipsadids. And I've told my wife more times than I can count, I, I have to go. Like, i got to get pictures for the book. So 
you know, she she knows I'm full of crap. I just want to go. But no at the same time, acquire pictures. Yes. But at the same time, there's starting to be this element of truth to it. So I'm trying to scheme and figure out a way for me to end up down in Paraguay. Like, I don't know. Their their seasons are flipped. So if I can get down there in um, late October, or early November, that would be spot on. Perfect. If I ever get the chance to find a false water cobra in the wild, when that happens, I'm going to grab it and then I'm going to like have a stroke out of pure unabashed happiness and probably die. Like that, that would be, <laughs> this may not be a good thing to actually occur, but it's a life goal now. So that's awesome. And we'll definitely be looking out for that. I guess it's going to be a long term project for you. Yeah. But no, don't, I, I'm trying to figure it out. I'm pretty sure I can ultimately. So. <laughs> awesome well thanks again everyone go yep. check out what he's got going on what i've got going on focus cubed habitats i will catch you guys next week